1: Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. All right, Bruce, I, I had my month of basketball. I'm ready. I'm, I'm back. I'm ready to focus on football from here on
2: out. You don't want to talk women's hoops or anything like that?
1: Well, you know, it might come up in one of the conversations that we planned for today. But otherwise, it's spring football. You know, OK, not to go off topic right off the bat, but I may be the lone or at least one of the minority of college basketball enthusiasts or nc tournament enthusiasts who my interest in the tournament peaks at the elite eight once they actually know who's in the final four it's kind of all gravy for me obviously i'm going to watch those games but i just feel like that's where the suspense is and who makes the final four not necessarily who then
2: wins the final four yeah i'm kind of with you i mean look i thought there was great drama in those games that we had this past weekend but you know what it's almost also like for a lot of us i think it's it's about the, the bracket. I don't know, the bracket is the first weekend. And then I think yeah. it starts to, most people start to lose stuff. What I think has always been interesting about the tournament is I feel like the first week, if not even the second week, is really about some under the radar star, unless you're a diehard college basketball person. Everyone kind of discovers them. Like Senderius Thornwell? No, I think it would be like there are guys that happened in the years before. I would argue that the guy who everyone is discovering now, it's not like he was, no one heard of him before. But just seeing him on a big stage is actually his coach Frank Martin
1: yeah that's true um, it's a big look, it's often this is the moment when, when coaches become star star coaches uh, Mark Fuse obviously pretty well established already Dana Altman's been doing this a long time but yeah Frank Martin has kind of stolen the show um, okay we're gonna get back to well oh, okay you're not gonna segue into
2: it or we're we gonna let's, stay just on seg- let's
1: just segue into that now first of all what a run. That that school is on and, frankly, that state is. Do you realize that right now, over the last year, the state of South Carolina, they have the reigning baseball champion, Coastal Carolina, the reigning football champion in Clemson, and now South Carolina, the Gamecocks, have both the men's and women's teams in the Final Four. It's not like this is the the biggest state in the country. Uh, this, is, this is an amazing run for this state.
2: Yeah, um, and I feel like... I feel like the Clemson, you know, football thing. Obviously, they were almost they almost wanted a year ago, but the South Carolina basketball thing has just seems like it came completely out of left field. It did. It, it's not. They, uh, they didn't even have. I looked this up. Fifty seven schools received at least one top twenty five vote in the preseason coaches poll. South Carolina was not one of those fifty seven. You
1: don't even have to go back to the preseason. Go back to the last few weeks of the college basketball regular season. They they stunk. <laughs> There's no way around it. They. In fact, I I was critical of the committee even putting them as a number seven seed. I didn't think they deserved that high. And so this has come out of complete nowhere. Uh, That is the randomness of the NCAA tournament. And we get into this argument all the time with football. People want to expand the football playoff. And people like myself say that would devalue the regular season. And the fans that want a larger playoff say, what are you talking about? Well, here's your perfect example of it. South Carolina did not have a good regular season. But they are now one of the last four teams standing with a chance to win the national championship. It's fun. It makes for a really fun tournament. But like the tournament and the regular season in college basketball could not be more
2: disconnected. It's pretty impressive. I just looked it up. South Carolina, guess where they rank in population in the country? I would guess like um like 38th. No, I would have guessed low. I wouldn't have guessed that low. Uh 24th. Oh, I'm way off. Yeah, you are way off.
1: Still, I somebody pointed out that the last time that a state had the actual champions in all three sports was California in 1972, I believe. So you would expect that to come from a state like California,
2: not Right, Bruins, basketball, Trojans, football, and who in
1: baseball? USC? Uh, No, it was, um, I want to say like Fullerton or somebody like that. So, you know, I'm not sure I like the women's team's chances of winning the national championship because of UConn, but maybe the men can continue this run that they're on. We will see. All right, related to South Carolina. Bob Ryan of the Boston Globe, you know who that is. Hall of Fame. He's a Hall of
2: Fame sports writer, right?
1: He is a world-renowned basketball writer. And he sent a tweet yesterday that caught a lot of people completely off. They found it puzzling, myself included, until maybe we did a little more research. He said that South Carolina, that the number one dumbest conference realignment move ever was South Carolina leaving the ACC in 1971. Now, your immediate reaction to that is, what? Because it's obviously worked out pretty well for South Carolina now to be in the SEC, in football, and just frankly in all sports. But there was a period there where they weren't in any major conference. They were an independent. They were in the my favorite, the Metro. Remember the Metro? I do remember the Metro. Florida
2: State was in the Metro. Louisville was in the Metro.
1: Cincinnati was in the That's how I knew the Metro. UC was in it with Virginia Tech and... Uh, Tulane is kind of the precursor to Conference USA, I would say. But eventually, you know, it all worked out. They ended up in the SEC. Um, But that's what I, I thought he was bringing up now, which seemed really clunky because he said, you know, culture and geography, it's a no brainer. And I'm thinking, you know, he's in Boston. Boston College is in the ACC. Geography went out the window a long time ago. But if he wants to make the case that it was really dumb in 1971, I'm open to that argument.
2: Yeah, I I think this is, you know, I saw people just just shredding him online for this. I think you even you even came off the top rope on him, too. I did. Um, Hey, just before I get into the actual part of this, do you ever sit there and go, you know what? I don't follow this person. I don't know this person. Do I really need to weigh in on this? I'll let enough people go pick him apart or, you know, peck at him.
1: Uh, I don't really weigh in on those kind of things all that often. And I didn't even really weigh in. I just retweeted it and said, what? I don't like when writers who don't cover college sports at all suddenly chime in with these grand college sports. I mean, even if we th- want to come to the agreement that it was one of the dumber moves to say it was unquestionably the dumbest, given
2: some of the things we've seen in the last few years alone, seemed really out there. Yeah, look, hyperbole is a big thing on Twitter, and we also fall victim to it. Uh, what I thought was interesting, so when you had told me, hey, I want to talk about this, I kind of you know, looked around at the tweets and, and as well as some of the other comments around there. And our friend John Feinstein you know, had an interesting point in response to it. And obviously he's you know, is a big authority on the ACC and certainly on the ACC basketball. And he pointed out South Carolina left because of Freddie Solomon. Do you remember Freddie Solomon? That is before my time. Yeah, great player with the 49ers. Uh, played it at, at Tampa, which is probably an interesting story in itself. Tampa football, once upon a time, had some very prominent guys. Uh, he was on one of the last big-time teams they had. Paul Dietzel couldn't get him in. I think he meant couldn't get him in academically because they had a 1-6 rule. And what's a 1-6 what's a rule? I don't know what the 1-6 rule GPA? is. No, I, I honestly don't know. If it was 1.6, I don't know what that was. Um, Coach McGuire, that was the basketball coach, Frank McGuire, showed me a letter. He wrote to the board of trustees, pleading with them not to leave the ACC. True story. I asked a longtime older coach I know who is from that part of the country about if he knows something similar. And he taught – Freddie Solomon grew up in South Carolina, was a huge recruit, and they could not get him. Now I said – so the SEC basically – was a lot more lax on uh, emissions policies. And he said back then the ACC had the 800 rule. You needed to have a minimum of 800 on the SAT. He said he thought the SEC had some kind of a formula with GPA and SAT involved. But he also pointed out something that was pretty interesting. He said uh, that rule actually could have shifted the balance of, of North Carolina basketball as well because the legendary Pete Maravich, his dad press, he, this person thought was the first coach in waiting and this is going back what 40 plus years uh was expected to be the coach at NC State only NC State couldn't get him in because of the 800 rule so he ended up at LSU
1: so basically South Carolina was a good basketball school at the time and I think he's saying that if they had just stayed in the ACC they could have been you know part of the North Carolina and eventually Duke they weren't Duke yet at that point, really, um, you know, they could have been part of that. They could have been part of that glorious time in the ACC. But look, I wasn't alive in 1971, so it's hard for me to put myself in the in that place. I now and today in 2017, and frankly, since I started following college sports, I think of South Carolina primarily as a football school. they got a huge stadium. They fill it every week. Those fans are some of the most loyal fans in the country because South Carolina, frankly, wasn't very good for a long time. And they still filled that stadium. And it's a part of the country where football is king. And as we know, football drives realignment. So the fact that they're in the best or what's considered the best football conference in the country, certainly a money making machine, is the best possible outcome that school could have had.
2: Yes, it's worked out very well for them. You know, looking at some of the other tweets that Bob Ryan had, I think part of what was driving those tweets was also kind of lamenting a lot of his view, as you said, you know, he's a Hall of Fame. Uh, NBA basketball writer a lot of his view is is through the prism of basketball and I think one thing that realignment showed everybody who at least follows college athletics closely is Football drives the bus you may live in the Northeast. You may love the ACC. You may love what the Big East was But that wasn't bringing in the real money. That's football And I think when we saw that that changed it and a lot of people didn't like it I mean he had subsequent tweets about uh, you know who should you know Penn State should still be should be in the Big East, and this is like, you know, it's, it's wishful thinking. It's wishful thinking. I'm just I'm not.
1: You when know. when when Syracuse left the for the ACC, people would ask Jim Beheim, you know, uh, I mean, this is a guy whose whole coaching career was in that part of the country playing against Georgetown, Villanova, et cetera. Aren't you upset about it? He said, well, you know, obviously I would have loved for Syracuse to stay in the in the old Big East, but that Big East doesn't exist anymore. So what, you know, what choice did we have? It was staying in the, you know, you can't romanticize it. You can't say like, oh, we we need to stay loyal and be in this part of the country if that conference was basically imploding at the time. And so the ACC was their best option. So the comeback, that website that you may not be familiar with, but they they put some interesting content up And our, and Kevin McGuire, I've been on his podcast. He listed the top in light of Bob Ryan's tweet, the top five worst college realignment decisions of all time. So I'm going to read them to you and you'll tell me what you think in his mind. The number one worst conference realignment decision was the big 10 adding Rutgers and Maryland.
2: It was the worst from whose perspective from the big 10 from from the schools. No, I mean, it's the best thing
1: that could have happened to Rutgers. Is it the best Uh, thing
2: that could have ever happened to Rutgers? Oh yeah. I I don't think it's the best thing that could have ever happened to Rutgers. Well, again, you gotta,
1: you gotta deal in, uh, You're saying it was the worst thing that could have happened competitively, but that school was drowning financially, and the Big Ten said, hey, why don't you come join the richest
2: athletic conference in the country? Yeah, how great is that going to be if they're constantly 4-8, and though, because they can't get traction there?
1: I mean, it's going to allow them to fund their entire athletic department. You know, sometimes it's bigger than the football team's record.
2: Could they have found a more viable— I mean, I would argue that they would have been better off and not being in the Big Ten East the way this is playing out. Everything's cyclical, but, you know, I don't see Ohio State— even if Urban Meyer leaves two years from now, stinking. I don't see, you know, Michigan's never consistently going to be worse than Rutgers. You know, Penn State, I get the financial aspect of it. I do. But football, it's going to be really, really hard for Rutgers to ever get any momentum there, I think. And the difference in back in the day when Rutgers, when Shiano had Rutgers relevant, they had five non-conference games and were in a much more manageable conference. Now they have three. I think it's going to be a real challenge to get them to consistently pass six wins.
1: Yeah. I mean, you may be right. I, I think that, uh, Jim Delaney's fantasy is that Rutgers, that the prestige of being in the big 10 and having Ohio state Michigan come to town just elevates the program in that sense. And then they become more competitive because of that, but it may be the opposite. It may be that they just, you know, can't get out of the basement. And, uh, And then what good does all that money do? But his point was that it was the worst conference realignment decision because of the Big Ten. I will say the Big Ten is making money off this, too, by getting uh, the Big Ten network onto basic cable in the New York, New Jersey area. Okay, number two. Now I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to say this is my number one. Tulane leaves the SEC. Uh, Tulane, charter member of the SEC in 1933. The school made the decision to leave the conference in 1964 because of a fundamental difference in opinion regarding scholarship limits. Tulane and Georgia Tech, who joined the ACC, who left the SEC and joined the ACC, wanted scholarship— this is going to sound crazy. They were arguing for scholarship restrictions to be limited to 140 between football and basketball, but the rest of the SEC was not willing to place a cap. That seems like a pretty reasonable cap, 140 uh, between those sports. With that being the case, Tulane took off for football independence until the formation of Conference USA— in 1996. I mean, needless to say, Tulane never recovered from leaving the SEC.
2: No, I mean, uh, that would have been my guess when you said the first ones, because that's the one that, you know, kind of gets thrown out a bunch. So I can't disagree with that.
1: Number three, I'm going to say this is a little bit of recency bias. I don't know that this is that big a deal. UMass joining the MAC in football, which they did uh, a few years ago, ended in 2015. Obviously, that did not go well, but that doesn't strike me as a particularly... Glaring one. Now he has Bob Ryan. Bob Ryan was close. South Carolina leaving the ACC is number four. And number five, the Big 12 dragging its feet and leading on any number of schools in the process. So that would have been last year. Um, I feel like we're missing something here.
2: Well, first of all, what was the rationale behind why South Carolina was four?
1: Well, it mentions the dispute you talked about. Um, basically compares it to Tulane leaving the SEC. But that, Tulane, that South, unlike Tulane, South Carolina eventually landed on its feet. But yeah, I mean... Two decades there, where it was kind of stuck in purgatory, um, you know, not playing big time football. The Metro is not—I uh, don't want to sell it short. I mean, that was some. There were some good basketball teams in that conference. That was, Louisville was in that conference when Louisville was winning national championships under Denny Crumb. So, you know, it wasn't uh, what you would consider to be a mid-major conference by any means. But, uh, but there was a period there where they were an independent. It's really hard to be an independent in basketball.
2: I got to be honest, it's – it's oh, you know who was a really successful independent once upon a time? I'm almost positive they were an independent. This predates you. DePaul.
1: I think there were a lot of those kind of schools that were independent. Xavier was an independent uh, at one point. I talked to them because I covered them this past weekend. We talked about that. But the problem was the NCAA tournament – I don't know when exactly the NCAA tournament changed its format. But at one point, you could get into it as an independent as – about the same way you could from another comp, But then when conference tournaments became the automatic
2: qualifier, then you needed to be in a conference.
1: So I feel well, like it's, what's missing.
2: It's, Go ahead. It's cra- I was going to ask you, and this is kind of where I was going with this. And I, I, again, a lot of this had to do with Ray Meyer was a great coach. Then his son, Joey, took over. Um, but I remember growing up when DePaul was a, was a powerhouse program. Um, Tommy Kleinschmidt. No, that's after. No, it's Mark Aguirre. Yeah. Who's like, I mean, they had some they had some guys back in the 70s and 80s. Um, but what I wanted to ask you was that's, that's a program that has largely become irrelevant. Now.
1: I'm going to give you a DePaul nugget here in a second that's going to blow your mind when you consider what you just said, right? They were national power, Final Four caliber team, even into the 90s. And, you know, like I said, I love Tom Kleinschmidt. I love that era of DePaul basketball. So I read this story recently and I just dug it up. The The, the city of Chicago, well, that, that's not accurate. DePaul is getting a new arena in the next couple of years. And it was partially publicly financed. And now people are really upset about that. And here's why. <laughs> Do you want to know what DePaul averaged in basketball attendance? This is a Big East school. 4,000 people. 2,395 people at the Rosemont, the the former Rosemont Horizon, now the...
2: uh, Hey, when I was a student at Miami, I don't think they average more than that. I don't even think they average that much. But it gets more depressing. That's the average. And as you know, those
1: numbers can be a bit inflated. First of all, they're now realizing how completely insane it was. The the projections for how they would break even on the new arena, which is a 10,000-seat arena, is that they will average 9,500 fans a game. It seems like they're pretty far off from that. They weren't even
2: good when Tom Kleinschmidt was there. They were an NCAA tournament team. <sighs> I think they were in one time in four years, too.
1: Well, you know, I'm sure they would kill to have that back now. Yeah, sorry. I, I walked us down a road <laughs> I never in a million years thought we'd go. <laughs> so to bring it back to the present day, we've had a lot of conference moves over the last 10 years or so, maybe a little bit longer if you want to go back to Miami, joining the ACC. And none of them are in his article here. Uh I mean, just among the recent moves, anybody off the top of your head that you would say could possibly qualify for one of the
2: worst decisions of all time? Uh, look, I know there's a lot of Miami fans that weren't thrilled about moving to the ACC. Yeah. Um, that It certainly helped other sports and it obviously helped college basketball. But I think if you have a good, you know, if you have a better coach, that makes a big difference too. Um, you know, I was sad to see like the whack kind of fall apart the way it did. But I think one of the things that you get as you kind of sift through some of this stuff is sometimes the economic reality of a sport at a school, most people don't know. And you don't know drilling down deep about what's there, unless you know somebody who actually coached at the school and dealt with it or dealt with the athletic directors and saw what the economic realities were. So I kind of am leery of going too far down the slope on this one.
1: Yeah, I mean, pretty much every decision that you look back at, they was either made for stability reasons. Um, You know what I would have put in here, actually, now that I think about it? One of the dumbest decisions was the Big East, and I probably shouldn't say this because it worked out well for Fox, but the Big East had a, this is before the Big East imploded, had an offer on the table for a pretty nice deal with ESPN, and they turned it down thinking they could do better, and... That immediate, almost immediately, led to the splintering of the conference and the basketball schools splitting off. And you know, now Cincinnati went from being in a you know the best basketball conference to the American, which is not a good basketball conference, and you know can't can't get access to the BCS, UConn as well. So, I mean, that thing had terrible ramifications for the football schools. In terms of schools themselves like you said i mean there isn't a single one that i look at and say they're not they're not in a more stable or financially lucrative position than they are now from a football perspective i'm curious your thoughts on this do you think nebraska will ever regret having moved to the big 10
2: just pure not financial football uh the school itself are some fans the school itself probably not um and i think they were benefited look you know the conference shift of divisions has helped them a lot uh you know, I think of where their lot in life is, well, and made like the, the, the job Big 12, better.
1: It's not like the Big Twelve North was a was that hard a division for them. No, they but I'm talking about one, no, but I'm
2: talking about once they went into the Big Ten.
1: Right. I so. just think that it's made it harder for them to recruit. Like it's it's basically moved them from from a place where they could have pretty good access into Texas. That's just
2: gone. They just don't have a natural recruiting pipeline now. You know what? I disagree with that. I, I think that that's on the staff. The fact that whether you play there or not, uh, Ohio State isn't in the Big 12, and they seem to get good players out of Texas.
1: Well, they do, but they only need a few to supplement
2: their, their own backyard. Nebraska doesn't have a backyard to recruit from. I mean, Nebraska still goes into California. I mean, they, they didn't play in that conference. Nebraska
1: went from being... You know, I mean, the one of the ma- main reasons their fans are st- are thrilled to have gotten out of there is they just couldn't stand Texas. They couldn't stand Texas being the bully. The of that flagship, conference. yeah, right. But they've moved to a conference where there are what
2: uh, at least three schools that are more flagship than they are. Yes, at least if not more than, yeah, yes, maybe more than that.
1: That, that, that was the one that came to mind. And again, you have to deal in reality, and certainly the Big Ten the equal revenue sharing of the Big Ten, the, just the better revenue is is an upgrade from what they were dealing with in the Big 12 and the instability there. But I don't know that ultimately that's going to turn out to be the best thing for Nebraska
2: football. So can I throw this back at you a little bit here with your, your Texas argument with Nebraska? Sure. So I picked a random year, two, a class of 2005. They were in the Big 12. They were firmly in there. They signed 32 recruits that year, including the best player that that Nebraska has seen since you know, like, an, I think both of our both of our times covering the sport. Mm-hmm. Sue? yes. How many other players do you think came from the state of Texas that year?
1: I'm trying to think who. So that is that Bill Callahan. Yeah, uh, he he didn't seem so caught up in that. Uh, thirty-two, to to thirty-two commits. Thir- nine of nine? the thirty-two.
2: Yeah, no three. Really three that might explain why they went downhill maybe there so they have one two three four five six seven eight eight players from california in Mm -hmm. there but three texans not a lot
1: so then it was pretty scattered around the country from there right yeah
2: i mean you know, that's, uh, like I said, nine, you know, that many almost double digits in there. They were in Kansas, it seems to be a decent amount. Looks like they had four, five. They have more players from Kansas than they They have five players from Kansas, three from California, or three from Texas.
1: Okay, so let's fast forward to uh, 2017. Okay. And Mike Riley's, this would have been Mike Riley's first full class, right? Uh, no. No second full second full class we got one two three from texas so that hasn't changed in your mind and then one two three from california kind of all over the map here We've got a baton rouge kid a miami kid austin texas columbia missouri florida it's tough,
2: man. They're there, stuck in the middle of the country, and they have to recruit the whole country. By the way, I looked up 1999 Nebraska signed 19 players. According to this, none were from Texas. Hmm. So it sounds like I was just completely off. No, I think it's. Just, I'm guessing you were probably more anecdotal and thinking. You know, you right. probably remember some prominent players and everything. Uh, one of those players in that class, I remember doing a feature on Tanu Fanotti who was listed as here at 6'4", pounds. I think when I saw him, he was like 370, uh, but he was from Hawaii. He was an offensive lineman. Uh, yeah, so it's very interesting. By the way, since we're talking Nebraska, uh, I almost went to see a guy I like who will be their starting quarterback, and we this will tie back to Tulane, Tanner Lee. He's a transfer who was down in San Diego training last week, and there's pretty good buzz about him. Uh, He was a very talented kid. Anybody who saw him at the Manning camp knew. He's probably the best passer they've had there in a long time. I'm curious to see how he will do with Mike Riley. So we'll see.
1: So I think we we exhausted the uh, conference realignment discussion. Let's turn our attention to Michigan State. Michigan State coming off a terrible football season, and now they've got a sexual assault scandal on their hands. And Mark D'Antonio, in a strategy I'm not sure I would recommend, Went complete into complete radio silence nearly the entire spring. They spring football games coming up this weekend, and only now for the first time did he address the media. Uh, this is Tuesday, so Tuesday morning, and well, take it from there because I know you saw it live.
2: Yeah, um, you know one of the things that has gone on there, and I I do give him at least a nod for this. Uh, one of the things he said is he felt like talking about things like who's going to be the quarterback felt very trivial in the wake of the sexual assault investigation. There three players have been uh, suspended in the, in this, but he did not say uh, who they were. And there's other players who I guess were not going to be part of the spring game. So that's only going to add to probably the rumblings of who actually is involved. Um, you know, look, this is, it's, let's not kid ourselves. This does not come at a great time. No, this should never come at a good time, but you know, this team just went three and nine. And so that certainly adds to the, to the pressure around there. There was a lot of rumblings, you know, not, not far from from that school about how bad the, the, the dynamic was in the locker room of leadership last year. And there was a lot of uh, rifts supposedly coming out of there. So that adds to it. But, um, and Antonio was blunt about it. He said, look, I make uh, – I don't think there's any question that the investigation has had a big impact on their program. And he also said he had – he had really didn't know when this was going to be wrapped up. So there's a lot of stuff going on. You know, I, I think there's a lot of questions about how long he'll be back there too on top of it. So the part I watched
1: made me think, gosh – Man, how do things? How quickly things change! You go back to the season before last; they made the college football playoff, and he was just on a phenomenal run of eleven win seasons and Big Ten titles, and just you know, you couldn't a coach couldn't be on more firm ground than that. And boy, has it turned in a year between the terrible season on the field and now this sexual assault issue. Now, I will say, it was the opposite of the Art Briles school of duck and run. It was. You know, somebody actually tried to turn the uh, topic to football. Hey, can you tell us about what's been going on in practice? And he said, actually, no, I'm not going to because that would trivialize the ma- I mean, he 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 flat out kept saying it's this is extremely serious and I don't want to trivialize it by talking about our quarterback competition.
2: Honestly, I think that's the right approach from there. Uh, there's a couple other issues that are involved there too. Curtis Blackwell, who's the uh, I think his title is the director of, of advancement and performance. He was also suspended uh, and, and the school has just called it several allegations. D'Antonio didn't get into that about whether Blackwell's suspension was connected to this. So there's a lot of stuff going on there.
1: D'Antonio also said there are other players that are currently suspended but not related to this, which just causes even more speculation.
2: You know, people are going to go watch the spring game and go, "Okay, well, this guy's not out there. It's like, I hate to say it, but for a lot of people, there's going to be some guilt for some things that maybe aren't connected to the sexual assault scandal or at least some uh, innuendo there. That's, That's certainly not a good thing for them either.
1: So what can he do to and obviously it's hard to say this without knowing what the results of this investigation will be and what it how it reflects on the program. But what does he do to dig out of this hole?
2: You know, look, I, I think the most important thing he can do is let the investigation run its course, which just sounds like, you know, it's above his head, which I think is the right thing. And then you have to hope that the that the quote unquote culture that you have in your locker room is strong enough and you have good enough leadership to build back up because, Again, they you know this isn't a team coming out of like an eight and four. They were they were really awful last year, and they're losing some of their most talented players to the NFL. You know their most talented players, the defensive lineman Malik McDowell, he's moving on now. It doesn't mean they don't have some good young players in there, but uh, think about the landscape of how much the landscape of the Big Ten has changed in the last two years. Again, I look at Penn State. Penn State just won the won the conference. Penn State is built to get a lot better than they were and should be more talented next year than they certainly were last year. So Ohio State, yeah, that great you know national title team has moved on, but they're still loaded. Michigan is going to lose a bunch of seniors, but there's st- you know he's recruited well and there's still a lot of players there. So you know all of a sudden now Michigan State, which was battling with Ohio State for the top spot in that division, now they're trying to push past Maryland again to be the number four team in that side. Crazy. It's just crazy how quickly this turns. Yeah, so I I remember, I think, uh, I'm trying to remember who wrote this about a year ago. Somebody was talking about, like, you know, people do programs on the rise, programs on the decline. Programs on the decline is never an easy thing to, you know, put your neck out there. But Michigan State was not one of those that came up for a lot of the same reasons that we just said. And this was before they went three and nine. Let me ask you this. First, do you think he ever wins another Big Ten title at Michigan State?
1: Whew, man. Um,
2: I'm gonna say no. I'm gonna say no. Also, do you think he ever has another top 15 finish at Michigan State?
1: I think that's realistic. I, I here here's where things are a little different for Mark D'Antonio than if we were talking about you know one of these eight gazillion SEC coaches that is considered to be on the hot seat. Mark D'Antonio has built up so much mileage there, and it's not the the cut you know the pressure cooker of some other schools. I think he will be given every opportunity to get things right. It will not be a situation where if they go four and eight this year, he's done. Uh, now, how long do you get? You know, I think certainly you can't have three straight losings. You got to get, start getting back to bowl games soon enough. Um, you know, he's still a good coach. I do wonder how much that program has. I just feel like the, the program's identity was so much about its defense and the defense was so much the personality of Pat Narduzzi. And I just wonder at what point do they have to think about some sort of change there instead of just like, oh, we're just going to continue doing what we've been doing.
2: Yeah. Look, it's interesting that that there was so much, especially came from the NFL side of so much rumbling about Connor Cook's leadership. And then the year he, year after he's gone, they certainly had some leadership issues.
1: So... Do you think that so I'm gonna put you on the spot here a little bit, so there's a program that suddenly feels like it's in decline you recently visited with Jim Mora and did a really great story um about his you you you
2: sum it up uh so Mora went and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro with chris chris long and and Nate Boyer Chris long obviously NFL star Nate Boyer was former Texas long snapper and Green beret uh, they have done some amazing work in East Africa to or in Africa to, um, to help the issues of clean water there. And so Jim Mora was part of a group that I think was 14, uh, 14 people, several former NFL players, several uh, military vets went over and climbed the mountain. And Jim Mora raised on his own along with his buddy Mark Patterson. They were college uh, teammates at Washington. Patterson later played in the NFL raised over $45,000. And that's the benchmark. If you can hit $45,000, you can put in a water well, which, you know, it, when, when listening to Mora talk about it, re, you know, I spent a couple hours in his office and he's showing me pictures and everything. And it really is overwhelming to see the impact that can make on lives there. And it's stuff that we take for granted here. Uh, whether it's showering or just, you know, getting water to brush your teeth or any, you know, any little detail of, of your life that you don't even think twice about. And he said, it really gave him a perspective on entitlement. And he said, you know, I have a lot of players on my team who come from disadvantaged backgrounds, but it is nothing compared to what I saw over there. And so, um, you know, it was just, it was just really, it was uh, inspiring to, to hear more talk about that. And I think, you know, to his credit and, he has, how would you describe his his media persona? Gruff. Okay. Um, that's fair. I, I don't know that. I think even he would probably admit it's not always the, been the best as how he would like it, but I think that's fair. I could say, you know, prickly would have been another word. But, um, you know, I know this because of Brandon Huffman, who we've had on the podcast, you know, really re- good recruiting reporter for scout.com whose daughter was was battling cancer Jim Mora raised close to 150 grand for Avery his daughter um i mean that's going way above and beyond just doing you know doing something good and he's been very very involved in in charities and things like that just not to say other coaches don't do a lot of great work too but you know i think for you know that was this is just more really good stuff that he's done but i think the challenge is just know, hey, they're coming out of a 4 and 8 year and ultimately that's what people are going to judge you by. I mean, you're the you're hired as a football coach.
1: Yeah, after all that, I don't want to go now I feel bad about going in this direction, but I was going to ask you if you think that's an example of a program in decline because not just 4 and 8, but you know, he he completely tried to reinvent his offense last year and that did not go well at all and now that, you know, Kenny Adeyapo Palomalu, he fires him after one year. Um, now they're starting over again with Jet Fish. It just—it uh, seems like it's re- you know it doesn't feel like there's any excitement for UCLA football. Josh Rosen a year ago was you know could not have been generating more buzz. He got hurt, and now it's like people forgotten he still plays there because Sam Darnold's getting all the attention across town.
2: Uh, can they recover from this? I think they can. I mean, just from looking at some of the personnel they have, I mean. You do realize they, they were the ones who signed the number one recruit in the country this past year.
1: Yes, and everybody, but here's the thing, for a few years at least, I kept hearing from other coaches in the Pac-12, that UCLA was the most talented team in the conference, and yet he couldn't win the conference, he couldn't really get over the hump of like nine and four. So even if they do improve this year, which I'm sure they will, what reason has he given us to think he can deliver a Pac-12 championship there?
2: Uh, that's the challenge. I mean, look, they beat USC three years in a row in his first three years. That's nothing to sneeze at, but you know, I would look at them. They went four and eight, you know, this is going to be Josh Rosen's third offensive coordinator slash quarterback coach in three years there. That's not easy to juggle. Um, you know, I still think they're going to be a really good team. I think they're the second best team in the PAC 12 South behind USC, but I could see them, I think they'll win at least eight games. I think Jed Fish is a, is a, is a better fit for this offense. Uh, they, they reshuffled a lot. I mean, new O-line coach, new running backs coach, new receiver coach. I mean, that's a lot of change. Tom Bradley, you know, longtime Penn State guy, is still there running the defense. You know, even though they lost Eddie Vanderdose and Tack McKinley, you know, Jalen Phillips is the number one recruit I was talking about. He's already there. He's almost 6'6", 270. They expect big things from him. I think they'll still be really good up front. They lost, you know, pretty much everything in the secondary. And that's, you know, that's not a good, you know, that's still a quarterback with a lot of – there's still a lead with a lot of quarterbacks in it. That's why I think they'll probably be an 8-4 and four team and not better than that. But I expect a big bounce back from them. And to take your question further – um. I don't think this is a program in decline. I just think it was one where they didn't really, you know, they had a lot of eggs in the Rosen basket. And when he went down, I think they really struggled. And I think that's, you know, they had some issues. Well, they
1: couldn't run the ball
2: at all. Well, That's the other thing. They've they've had a couple of guys, you know, one was a five-star running back out of Texas who's a big, fast kid. But the question is how physical is he as a runner? And that, you know, came back to bite him. They did not run the ball well at all last year. And, you know, couple that without without having your star quarterback, you know, you're going to really struggle. And they did. And they have to, you know, Jedfish came from Michigan where they ran the ball very well, even without, you know, a proven number one feature back. They got to find a way to run the football a lot better this year. OK,
1: anything else on your mind this week?
2: Uh, I guess I got two things. One, do you have a media site or media person who has become kind of a go-to for you in the Twitter age that you're like, wow, this site or this company or this person delivers really good content and it's invaluable for me doing my job covering college football? Well, there's, a, there's many. Um, one that kind of, when I say under the radar, one that I think you probably has come up in the Twitter age. Let's put it that way.
1: I really like what uh, coachingsearch.com is doing, which, by the way, is not what it was originally uh, doing, which was covering coaching searches.
2: Yeah, Chris Vanini is the guy behind it now, and he
1: yeah, he just must watch every press conference in the country and listen to every radio interview. He listens to our podcast, and you know gives you like highlights of the best things you wouldn't have otherwise. There's no way you would have heard this quote or seen this interview, and um, you know uh, just spanning the entire country. And so a lot of that, if you're talking about Twitter, I certainly would have known wouldn't have known about that without Twitter.
2: Yeah, mine. The reason why I kind of came up to this was eleven warriors, the Ohio State site, which is I guess an independent site. Uh Um, I'm going to Columbus next week, and just uh, it's pretty much one stop shopping to like get up to speed on things you may have missed at a press conference or things that just would be below the radar. It's easy to find and very accessible. So, um, and again. That's something that I think I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure I probably would have found as easily outside of the social media age. Right. Okay. What's the other thing? The other thing is the coach who is under 500 last year who you think can be a big star and have a breakout season? Kind of like a, a not Frank Martin. I know had a good you know good record last year, but is there a who do you, would you say would be the Frank Martin potentially of, of the college football season this year? How am I supposed to come up with that off the top of my head? This, this is the kind of things we're paying you a lot of money for. Okay. Well, do you have an answer? Uh, you know, the, the guy I'm most curious about to see what he – one of the guys I'm very curious to see what he does, and it's in a really tough uphill climb job, is Dino Babers at Syracuse.
1: I feel like – I mean, I, I already went out on a complete limb with Dino Babers. I already made it clear just how much I think he's going to break out this year. Uh,
2: anyone else come to
1: mind? So this is somebody who was under 500 last year
2: yes that that would be my standard for it. um
1: you know who you could say dan mullen was under 500 last year
2: okay you could say him
1: um I, he's got another uh exciting quarterback there who
2: who uh ran i believe for the third most yards of any uh sec quarterback yes if college football fans are still playing that fantasy game that we were you know signed up for a couple of years ago go with nick fitzgerald who'll probably bring in a lot of points uh you know is the one I would say and he was under five hundred last year. David Cutcliffe? Charlie Strong.
1: Yeah, well,
2: that's uh you know, that's a,
1: uh, that's 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 cheating. That's cheating. <laughs> <laughs> he literally gets an entirely new roster, one that won eleven games last year. I think that Bronco Mendenhall in Virginia will be a lot better. I don't know if they're gonna go from two and ten to above five hundred, but I certainly think they're gonna be a lot better. That would be one to keep an eye on. It's funny because I'm looking at this. A lot of the coaches that finished under 500 last year are guys we already know what they can do. Gary Patterson finished under 500 last year. Um, Like you said, Charlie Strong did. David Cutcliffe did. As we talked about, Mark D'Antonio did. Brian Kelly. Jim Mora did. 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 So, you know, it frankly aren't a lot of guys that fit the profile you're looking for, of like, they haven't done much yet. They're just getting started. Now, if we comb down into the group of five conferences, we might find somebody. Hey, you could say Gary Anderson. Gary Anderson, sure. Again, Gary Anderson won, I believe, 10 games in one season at Wisconsin. Yeah.
2: Wisconsin, yeah.
1: Now, Frank Martin had success at Kansas State. He'd been to an Elite Eight at Kansas State.
2: Yeah. yeah. Lots of Kansas State former basketball guys mm-hmm. having a lot of success at other schools.
1: That's correct. What's the stat? Five of the last seven. See, I think it's five of the last seven yeah. Kansas State basketball coaches went to a Final Four somewhere else.
2: Well, I think we have to give credit to Bill Snyder. It's osmosis.
1: All right. As always, you can send emails, which we will answer on our next podcast, to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And as always, if you enjoy The Audible, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. I'm going to add in one more thing here. There's I've been listening to some of my favorite podcasts I listen to. There's some sort of organized campaign going on. We are not part of it, but I like the idea, so I'm just going to use it anyway. There's a campaign out there this month for basically podcast awareness. So if you know people in your life who you think don't listen to podcasts currently, or maybe don't know about many podcasts, you should tell them about this podcast. Uh, the more people that, that get into it, and if they don't even understand the basics of podcasting, like how to download an episode, show them how to do it. I think it's a good idea. I think you know, more people uh, that listen to podcasts, the better. It's still a relatively small percentage of the population, so. That's our contribution to this campaign that, frankly, I don't even know who started it, but I know I've been hearing it a lot lately. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.